Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I find myself at an odd place this morning as I open my Bible and my notes uh, before an empty room. I want you to know if you are part of Santa Cruz Baptist community prior to all of this happening, uh, prior to all these odd circumstances that we have found ourselves in over the last seven weeks, uh, that we have been praying for you. This time has made me realize uh, anew the heart of Paul when he opens his letters and he mentions the fervency and the intensity and the frequency of his prayers for the churches. He longs to be with them. He longs to hear from them. And I feel that this morning uh, as I deliver a sermon to an empty room with you guys on the other side of the screen. So I would like you to know that the elders are seeking to bring you before God in prayer. That we love you and we want you to know uh, that more than we miss the regular gathering uh, that we do here in terms of the habit, in terms of the structure, in terms of uh, just the routine, we miss you. Paul writes in the opening of his letter to the Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he chose you because our gospel has come to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And I would like to add that if you have been joining us during this time through uh, our website, I'd like to encourage you to reach out to us uh, via email. Uh, it's office at santacruzbaptistchurch.com or office at santacruzbaptist.com uh, because we would love to uphold you in prayer in any way we can. As well, we have some resources available uh, that we can get to you in order to encourage you in your walk with Christ in this season. Uh, but we love you and we miss you, and we long for the time in which we can gather together again as the body of Christ. And it's with that actually in mind, uh, what it looks like to fruitfully walk with Christ that our text is concerned today. And so, without much further ado, let's turn our attention to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. We'll be in verses 1 through 2, or sorry, 1 through 20. Let's pray before reading the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, Father of Jesus, sender of the Son and of the Spirit, we humbly ask for you to reveal to us the identity of your son in this text. We ask that you silence our frenetic hearts, maybe our worried and anxious hearts, that we might hear your voice in this word this morning. We ask that you might give clarity. We ask that you might convict us of sin so as to knit our hearts more tightly to Jesus. And I ask that you quiet me so that you may speak. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be honoring in your sight, faithful to your word. Amen. 
Let me read the text for us today. Mark 4, 1 through 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went to sow. To sow. And he sowed some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it scorched it, since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into the good soil, and it produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves. But they endure for a little while, and then when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Thanks be to God for the word of the Lord. Let's unpack this text, and I want us to see three primary things, and a fourth one that actually follows from those three. Those three things are the forces that oppose the word, the mark of good soil, and the reason Jesus speaks in parables. And then what we're going to see is from those three, there's implied one other thing, and that thing is that Jesus, according to this passage, is the high prophet of God's kingdom. It might be helpful as we think about this uh, just to ask ourselves, what is a parable? Just to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, and there are two basic understandings of a parable. Uh, you see, first, a parable is a story with layers of meaning that's used to illustrate a point which might be difficult to capture in didactic instruction, which means formal classroom instruction. So something that's hard to receive uh, in a formal classroom, in formal lecture format, uh, there a parable might be the most helpful. 
Second thing to keep in mind when thinking about a parable is the word parable itself. You see, parable is actually a transliteration, meaning that it's a word in English that simply uses the English alphabet in place of uh, the alphabet from the language the word came from. In other words, parable is just a Greek word, parablo. And that word means to para alongside bolo, to cast or to throw. And so the idea is that if you had some ideas, some instructions, something you're trying to teach, you cast or you place this story next to the content of the lecture, next to something, in order to instruct or explain about that thing. For Jesus, then, what we have is this set of stories where Jesus wants to explain something that is going to be hard to receive in the formal teaching setting. And so he places these stories alongside that instruction, or actually more often, alongside the answer to a question or alongside a circumstance which Jesus himself is observing. And that story helps explain what is taking place. In other words, it acts as a commentary on what's going on. So he places these stories alongside something he's witnessing or a question he has been asked in order to soften the blow or give more depth of meaning and understandable content to those, and this is key, those who are his true disciples. And this is one of the first things that we can note about this text is that the parable is explained to a crowd. Then the crowd leaves and it says when Jesus is alone, his disciples come to him. So the true meaning of the parable, then, is revealed to the disciples, those who followed him. This makes sense when you think about how Jesus closes his parable with the phrase, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Meaning that the hearing is not, uh, is not being obstructed by Jesus himself, but actually something within the hearer is obstructing the proper understanding of Jesus' parable. But we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, so you need, you need to know, as it were, uh, the hearing ears in order to understand the parable. Ears that are attuned to Jesus. Let's see how this plays out in our text and in our context that Jesus is speaking his parable to. So look with me at verses 1 and 2 of Mark 4. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into the boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. So right off the bat, what we should notice is the word again. This draws us back to something else. We should ask again, if this is mirroring another story, where did this take place first? And this then harkens us back to Mark 3, verses 7 through 12. You see in Mark 4, what we have is Jesus is teaching. He is teaching by the sea. He is teaching by the sea and a great crowd gathers. Well, what happens in Mark 3, 7 through 12? Jesus is teaching his disciples. He is teaching them by the sea. And he is teaching them and a large crowd gathers. We have the same three beats. Now, there's a subtle difference between Mark 3, 7 and Mark 4, 1. And that is how the crowd is described. The English translations tried to capture this by saying a great crowd and a very large crowd. That's playing off of the original language that is trying to show us that the crowd in Mark 4.1 1 
is moderately larger than the crowd in Mark 3.7, meaning that the crowd is growing. The ministry of Jesus is growing. In fact, we see this even more, uh, communicated even more, in the actions of Jesus himself in these two texts. In the Mark 3.7 passage, Jesus tells his disciples to prepare a boat for him because he feels like the crowd is going to crush him. But in Mark 4.1, the boat is no longer a precaution. Rather, Jesus is teaching from inside the boat using the water as a natural barrier to the growing crowd. So both what Jesus is doing in his actions and the words in the Greek text actually communicate to us that the crowd is growing. The ministry of Jesus is growing. His viewership, in effect, is growing. And so we should ask, as we try and figure out this parable, what is the ministry of Jesus? And I think just an easy answer uh, is taken from chapter 1. In Mark 1, 37 through 39, it says this, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So we have said throughout the study of the Gospel of Mark, before we moved into online teaching, uh, that Jesus' ministry takes place in several phases. And the first phase is quite clearly the quote-unquote teaching of the Word. And so that's what we see Jesus doing. He's teaching, and his ministry of teaching is growing. But what is this Word? What is the content of what he's teaching? Well, we get a summary of what the Word is in Mark 1, uh, verses 14 through 15. And it tells us, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, quote, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It sounds to me, then, like the word is some kind of message about the culmination of God's redemptive plans for all of history, dating all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and that being that creation is being restored, a new humanity is being saved, by the entering into human history of some kind of never-ending, always-flourishing kingdom of God's creation and of God's rule. And this kingdom, it appears, has arrived in the person of the king, Jesus Christ. Then we are told our response to that proclaimed word is that we turn from our sins, that we repent, and we put our trust in Jesus. And as he teaches about this forgiveness and this kingdom of God and what it is and his role and how forgiveness and the kingdom of God relate together in him, the crowd grows. So this is what Jesus is seeing. He's seeing an increasing crowd, but he knows that while he sees the numbers increasing with his eyes, he knows there's a reality behind the numbers. He knows that the audience does not tell the true story of the success of his ministry because there's something else taking place. And this parable is explaining that something else. This parable is a commentary on the moment Jesus finds himself in. In effect, he looks out at this growing crowd and he says, Among you are some who do not hear the word. And here's why. He's saying, I'm speaking the message of the kingdom. 
of the good news of forgiveness and reconciliation with God, far and wide I am scattering the seed, but not everyone who hears this message, not every one of you on whom the seed falls has the same result. There is hard soil in my audience. And you will not truly hear what I'm saying. There is shallow and rocky soil in my audience, and you may have joy of my words, but you will not endure. There is weedy and thorny soil in my audience, whom will never truly produce a crop. But there is good, deep, and rich soil in my audience. And you will reproduce this message until the field is full and the harvest is ready. That is what Jesus is seeing, and that is what Jesus is saying in this parable. So, let's try and grasp some of the details of this parable to understand what's going on. And the first detail we have to grasp is the nature of opposition against Jesus and his word, the seed being scattered. This opposition can be summed up in three ways. First, we find that there are hard hearts working in tandem with demonic action. Second, we find that shallow faith works in tandem with external persecution. And third, we find the cares and concerns of this world choke out the fruit. Now, I think it's fair to say that from where we stand in a modern world, one of the three of those stands out above the rest. The mention of Satan may trigger all sorts of things for us, and it's possible that you come to a place even as you view a sermon, even as you uh, engage in church activity, you come to a place where you have skepticism about the spiritual realm. And I know that I often actually struggle with the same sort of skepticism. I know that I often am far more driven by my eyes than by the nature of how uh, the text, the Bible, describes our world. And so I often have a difficult time with this, but I find Jesus very corrective here. And so there's a few things to note. And the first thing we should note about what's taking place is that the mention of Satan comes after the parable is told in the parable's explanation. What that means is that Jesus is not uh, a product of his age. He's not using a metaphor. He's not using another parable. He's not using another image. But he is talking about something he believes is a very real reality in the metaphysics of this world. He is talking about something he believes is truly at odds with his message. Satan is not a stand-in for something else. Satan is a force against his ministry, against God's kingdom, against the proclamation of the gospel. In other words, Satan simply is real. So just a few things to think about with this. Uh, as I mentioned, I've had a difficult time wrestling through how to think about these sorts of things. Uh, and I've been helped, if you guys have some reading time, by two books, actually, which have helped me understand the Bible's teaching on what we call the spiritual realm. And those two books are one by Michael Heisler called The Unseen Realm, and the other one by Graham Cole, titled Against the Darkness. Both of these books are readable, biblical, and helpful. Also, uh, if you approach the nature or the discussion of Satan uh, with skepticism, as I struggle with, I would invite you to ask uh, why it is that you think you approach it this way. Essentially, where does your skepticism come from? 
Do you have reasons to believe that the nature of the spiritual realm has been disproven? And I don't, uh, I don't just encourage you to ask that as some sort of gotcha question. Uh, I rather encourage you to ask that question for the sake of discussion. You see, we would love to talk to you about the text. We would love to help you understand anything and deepen your walk with Christ in this time. And part of that has to under do with understanding his teachings and the things that Jesus believed. So ask yourself this, but also please reach out to us. Help us understand where you're coming from. And let us walk you through where we come down on these things, how we understand what Jesus is talking about here. Unfortunately, uh, as we turn back to the text, we are not given much of a hint about how Satan is operating. I know when I think about spiritual warfare, I'm at first skeptical and then I'm overly practical. And I want to know what's going on here. How do we fight it? What do we do with this? What's Satan? How can he, uh, how can he affect us? But I want you to notice something. Uh, Satan appears to work in connection with hardened soil, or we might say hardened hearts. Satan is not unilaterally working here, and that's important because it tells us about the limitations that Satan has. He doesn't have all sovereign power to go and remove our faith. He has to work in tandem with hardened hearts. And I already kind of talked about this uh, just a second ago, but Satan is talked about as skimming the seeds off of the surface of that hardened soil. He's not excavating the ground to remove the seed of faith, to remove the message of Christ. That's also important because it tells us that if we, if we are truly good soil, we are secure. He cannot get underneath. That's not what this text is getting at. And so we have to notice that Satan according to this text, is limited to a certain extent by the state of the soil or the state of the heart in which the word has been or the word has landed on. The second thing we want to consider is that shallow faith works in tandem with persecution. And this is a hard passage uh, to grasp because we have to start from a perspective of understanding something by the rule of faith. The rule of faith is the belief that the Bible does not contradict itself. And so we use the Bible in its clarity to interpret anything that we find confusing. And the idea that seed can fall on something, that the message can fall on, some, on someone, be received with joy, and yet that person falls away, can be a hard thing to understand. And so we have to understand this with what I believe the Bible clearly teaches in terms of the perseverance of the saints. That those whom are saved and indwelt by the Holy Spirit are sealed and they cannot lose their salvation. Let's just consider a few texts that give us clarity on this. Philippians 1.6 I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Ephesians 1.13-14 In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it and the, to the praise of his glory. And John 10, 27 through 30, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So in light of these other three texts, I feel comfortable saying that the power of the Holy, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that though we struggle, and though we fall, and though we may walk away for a period of time, a true disciple is never lost. Because the Father is great and powerful, and nothing and no one exceeds his power. So as such, what is happening in this text has to uh, be affirming something other than a true believer losing their faith. Let's think about these texts. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they are not that they are that they all are not of us. And Matthew seven twenty one through twenty two, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So what does this mean for us? What do these texts point us to? A professing Christian and, uh, or someone professing Christ and even participating in ministry are not necessarily signs of true trust and allegiance in Jesus. This is the point which Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan pastor, tried to get at in his book, Religious Affections. That we might display outward affections for the things of the church and the things of Jesus and the things that Scripture points us to. And yet that affection might be very much grounded in selfish and sinful natures. It might be grounded in things like pharisaical legalism. So again... We look at 1 John 2, 3 through 4. And by this we know that we have come to know him, that is Jesus, if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. All of that about losing your salvation, about not losing your salvation, is great. But if we take a moment to reflect on what this is telling us, we ought to hear it as a warning. Yes, the cultural tides in our world have turned against Christianity. But what harm have we truly experienced as of yet? I cannot remember the source to be exact, but I once heard a speaker quip that the first century Christian feared the raised fist. But the 21st century Christian fears merely the raised eyebrow. I do not mean to belittle or uh, make light of any awkward or difficult experiences any of us have because of our faith. What I'm simply getting at is that we ought not consider ourselves good soil simply because we show up at church or, as it were, listen to a sermon, because we participate in things in a particular community, or because we own a Bible. Rather, what we should hear is the challenge of Christ to test, to make sure that we are truly good soil. That we have not simply received the word with joy, but when the sun rises, our faith will wither. 
we need to test ourselves. We need to ask ourselves hard questions. And I would like to put before us the exhortations of the Apostle Paul, who in Colossians 2, 6 through 7 said, Therefore, as you, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And if I might add one more to that, Jesus says in Luke 9, 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So when I think about all of these in tandem, when I think about them all together in light of our text, here's what I think. I think that we need to put our hands to the plow of faith and push forward. Let us open our Bible and wrestle with texts. Let us be readers of God's word. And have the glory of God and the conviction of our sins drive us to prayer. Prayers of repentance, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of intercession for others. Let us get rid of any silly notion that keeping God's commands and obeying the Bible is legalism. Jesus tells us again and again that to be a disciple is fundamentally, in a sense, to obey him and to follow the way that he laid out in faith, trusting that he who has saved us, will perfect us. Trusting that his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension make us right with God. Trusting that his kingdom will come. And if we do this, when or if or whether the sun of persecution arises, we will find that what we have done strengthens our devotion in the face of persecution, rather than driving us away from Jesus. <clears throat> the cares and concerns of this world are the third form of opposition which this text points us to. And Jesus specifically highlights the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things. Super fascinating ideas. We don't have time to unpack them uh, too deeply, so I will make this point brief. Notice that the seed in this text does not die. I think that's interesting. In fact, it seems a reasonable step in the progression of the parable. Some seed, we find, is scattered and it never starts growing. Some seed, we find, is scattered, but it soon dies. Some seed, we find, is scattered and it takes root, but it does not produce. It does not multiply. And some seed is scattered, it starts, it roots, it grows, it flourishes, and it multiplies. This too should be a warning to us. Not merely because we are listening to a sermon this morning, or for me delivering a sermon this morning, uh, are we to assume that we are good soil. Is it possible that our discipleship has stalled out? Is it possible that the cares and concerns of this world, the thorns of this world, have choked it? 
Let's think about this for a minute. What are the thorns? Well, the first thing that's clear is that these thorns are internal to us. Notice these thorns are not persecution or pressure external, as with the previous soil in the mention of the sun rising, something external to the seed and the plant. Rather, these come from inside. In fact, we could say this. There are ways in which our hearts cling to the culture and the systems of this world rather than the culture and systems of the kingdom Jesus is proclaiming. The thorns, in effect, divide our loyalty between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. I'm helped in my thinking about this by the author and Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith. He writes in his book, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit, Our wants and our longings and our desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behaviors flow. These are coming from the center of us. These are coming from the core of who we are. Which makes sense. Just listen to the terms used to describe the soil. There's deception. There's desire. And the word concerns could be translated anxieties. Those are things which are rooted in us, which need to be excavated out by the gospel. The deception of riches of this world needs to be taken out by the gospel. Our desires for other things needs to be taken out by the gospel. And our anxiety is about how this world functions and about whether or not everything will be okay. Need to be excavated out by the gospel. I know this is something I struggle with. The eyes of my heart are easily drawn away from the things of Christ and to the things of this world. To the new technologies or the more prestige or honor. I'm deeply grateful, therefore, for one of my seminary professors who taught me to pray a hymn. This hymn is titled, Jesus, All for Jesus, and it repeats uh, one stanza three times. The stanza goes like this, Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. All of my ambitions, my hopes, and my plans, I surrender these into your hands. All of my ambitions, hopes, and plans, I surrender these into your hands. For it is only in your will that I am free. For it is only in your will that I am free. Jesus, all for Jesus. Praying that hymn since grad school has helped me write my heart. Getting it off of a desire for the things of this world and blacking out the deceptive visual of riches. Surrendering my ambitions, hopes, and plans to Jesus. Understanding that when I am in His will, I am truly free and I am most then, who I was always intended to be. <clears throat> so the good soil. What about the good soil? Let me know one more time the focal point of this passage. I like how this particular commentator says it. He says, the central clue in this passage 
is found in various types of receptivity in the ground. Neither the sower nor the seed, and certainly not the weather, are determinative. Everything depends on the state of the ground. Thus, when it comes to the good soil, we should look at how the state of that ground differs from the previous three states. You see, it differs from the first by contrast in that the path, it is not hard. It is rather soft and can receive the word. And it is contrasted to the rocky soil in that it is deep and it enables a root system which anchor and support it. And it differs from the thorny soil in that there's room for multiplication. There's nothing there to choke out the fruit of this word. Since there are a variety of farming analogies used in Scripture, it's good to get clear what this mark of good soil is, what this multiplication is. Let's consider the last verse, verse 20. Those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. It seems to me that the most natural reading of this text is that the multiplication of grain is the multiplication that comes through the seed of the word falling on more good soil. If you think of the disciple, the follower of Jesus, as a single stock of grain, then here's the visual image this parable gives you. The word falls on the good soil, and it is received, and it sends up the stock. And when it comes time, the stock sheds more seed, which falls and produces more stalks of grain. Which is to say, more disciples. As such, I think we should understand Jesus' meaning here to be that the multiplication of the seed, the multiplication of the field, is a multiplication of disciples. This passage is telling us that the central mark of a follower of Jesus, the central mark of good soil, is participation in the Great Commission. To make disciples as we go. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded us. And why do we do these things? Because all authority on heaven and earth was given to him, and because he is with us always, even to the end of the age. <clears throat> so let me conclude this way. By touching on what Dustin told me was the hardest thing to digest in this passage. Save the hardest for last, Dustin. Nestled in between Jesus telling the parable and Jesus explaining the parable is a tough section. It says this, Mark 4, starting in verse 10. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret to the kingdom of God, but for those outside, Everything is in parables, so that, those two words, so that indicate purpose. 
so that they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus is saying that the parables are there so that people can hear his message but not understand it. So that they can see his ministry but not quite grasp it. Because if they did grasp it, they would repent, turn, and God would forgive them. To our ears, this is extremely difficult to hear. I want just to sit in that realization for a second. But I also want to point out, it might simply be hard to hear because we're lazy Bible readers. You see, if we notice, looking at the text in a Bible, these words are not original to Jesus. He's quoting something. What is he quoting? Well, the use of any Bible with footnotes will tell you that he is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. So let's close our, the sermon today by looking at Isaiah chapter 6. And what does that chapter tell us about Jesus? Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's important to note that the section we're looking at took place in the year of King Uzziah's death. This is really important because 2 Chronicles chapters 26 and 27 tell us much about that time period in Israel's history. Notably, it tells us this in chapter 27. Though Uzziah and Uzziah's sons followed the way of God, quote, but the people still followed corrupt practices. Isaiah has a vision that takes place in a time of faithlessness and rampant idolatry. Back to the text. Isaiah 6, 2 through 7. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched it to my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. What's going on? Isaiah has this vision in the temple. I don't know if it took place in a dream or when he was awake, he just all of a sudden had this vision. But the idea is he has a vision where all of a sudden he's in the throne room of God. And he sees God, the king, on a throne. And he sees angels all around him. And Isaiah, in a moment, has a very important realization. And it's this. He should not be 
there. He says, I am undone. I am lost. But one of the angels, rather than undoing him, rather than Isaiah losing his life, touches his lips, the thing Isaiah confesses as an instrument of sin. I come from a people of unclean lips, and I am a man of unclean lips. Those lips are touched with a coal, and that coal purifies him, which parallels the words of the angel that his sin is atoned for. Okay, that's what's going on. Let's continue. Isaiah 6, 8 through 10. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to the people, Quote, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears. Understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So the Lord requests a messenger. And Isaiah volunteers, and then he learns a second thing. He has a second realization uh, pretty soon after the first. So if the first realization is, I shouldn't be here, the second realization is, never volunteer for a job until you hear the description. He volunteers from this missionary service only to find out that his job will be to speak to a people that will not listen to him. To minister in front of a people who will not see and understand. They will be spiritually deaf and spiritually blind for the course of Isaiah's ministry. And he has a third realization. This is going to be unpleasant. And so he starts in Isaiah 6.11 with this. How long, O Lord, he said. And this is the response. Until the cities lie in waste without inhabitant, and the houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes his people far away, and the forsaken practices are many in the midst of the land. And though, get this, a tenth remain in it, they will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God here is talking about exile. Isaiah's ministry will be one of the witnesses against the nation of Israel that they are a faithless people because Isaiah was there. He spoke clearly about the things of God, called them clearly to repentance, and yet they did not hear and they did not see and they did not believe. Jesus is saying that he is following that same pattern of ministry. That though he speaks clearly about these things, the spiritual deafness and the spiritual blindness of the hardened hearts of those who hear him will ultimately lead to their judgment. But, there's a remnant. There are those who hear and are faithful. And those, if Israel itself is like a tree cut down, those are the stump that remains. And what we are told is from the stump, or that the stump itself, is a seed. And this will be burned again. Burned again? Where did we hear about burning the first time? We'll remember the coal that purified Isaiah's lips. 
It burned his sin away. It purified him. His sin was atoned for. And all that is left is a stump, which is what? A holy seed. A symbol, both in our parable in Mark 4 and throughout the scriptures, for the word of God. What's the point of all this? The point is this, that Jesus arrives as another Isaiah, calling God's people to repent and making available the secret, which is the unexpected manner of the coming of the kingdom of God. Like Isaiah's message, Christ's message is unexpected, it's challenging in nature, and it hardens the hearts of men. But it also crafts, carves out a remnant with that seed. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the greater Isaiah, the prophet whose lips were clean and thus had no need of repentance. Why? Because I think Jesus is in that room. Who does he see when he looks up and he sees the Lord seated on a throne? Is that not the place which Jesus is now seated on a throne? Who is Jesus? He's the greater Isaiah, the prophet whose word created a remnant, not only to survive exile, but a remnant whose faithfulness produced fruitfulness and who multiplied the seed 30 and 60 and 100 fold, such that the disciples of Jesus covered the earth. Who is Jesus then? He is the sower of the seed, the parable speaker, the high prophet of God's kingdom. Pray with me. Lord Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this word. We pray that we might hear it truly, that we might be convicted where we need to be convicted about the weakness of our walk with you, the state of our discipleship. We pray that you might refresh our hearts, that you might show us to be the good soil which has received your word, that our work in Santa Cruz, that that might multiply disciples of yours throughout the county, that we might participate in the fulfillment of the Great Commission, making disciples as we go, baptizing and teaching people to observe you, Jesus, and your commands. Thank you. Amen.